My guest for this episode is Sam Thayer, the expert forager and author. You can find his personal experience working with wild foods in his books, The Forager's Harvest and Nature's Garden. During this conversation, we talk about how Sam came to be regarded as an expert on foraging, where you can find more information on foraging, including live events to attend in the United States, and high-quality reference materials. We also take some time to answer some listener questions and also talk about mimicking natural systems to create productive environments that replicate the services of nature while better meeting human needs. If you like this or any other episode of the show, please take a few minutes and lend a hand in helping me grow the podcast. You can do so by going to thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support to find out how. While you're there, you can also find out how to follow the show on Facebook or Twitter, and also my mailing address if you ever want to send me a letter from wherever you are in the world. Now then, on to the interview with Sam Thayer. I'll join you again afterwards with some thoughts and updates. Then Sam, if you're ready, could you give us a little bit of your background and biography and how you came to the work that you're doing? My interest in edible wild plants dates to me being very little and spending a lot of time outside and often being hungry. And I didn't think I was interested in edible wild plants. I thought I was interested in food. And it just happened to be that some of them were wild. So any place that I learned about a plant I could eat, I remembered that information because it was important to me. It wasn't until I was maybe 10 or 12 years old that I started to think about edible wild plants as a topic separate from simply food. I had already started to recognize that people thought that collecting food from the wild was strange, but it just never did seem strange to me. And when I discovered that there were books about edible wild plants, it opened up this whole new world. I, I didn't have to pick up tidbits of information here and there from relatives or maybe the neighbors that I had from Laos, or I could actually open a book and read about what plants were edible and how to identify them. That started when I was about 10 years old, and it's been going ever since. There was a time when I thought there was just me and maybe a few other people interested in collecting wild food. I really knew just one or two other people, close friends of mine, that were interested in the topic. I didn't know that other people might want any of the knowledge that I had accumulated over the years. But when I was about 18 or 19 years old, I started to realize, hey, a lot of people want to learn this stuff. And so I started spontaneously leading plant walks for groups of friends. And then it was groups of friends and their friends and some complete strangers. And slowly, my career of teaching about edible wild plants just grew out of that. As you gained an audience, you moved from being just someone collecting this information into an expert that people sought out for more information? The dynamic was that I tried to start a foraging club. I thought, there's got to be some people interested in this who'd want to go out and do this on a regular basis. But what I tried to start as a foraging club just ended up being people coming who wanted to learn how to forage and not a group of foragers coming together, and it always ended up that I was showing people what they could eat. And I realized after a few months of that, it wasn't the dynamic that I thought it was to begin with or that I had envisioned. The dynamic was that I was the teacher and they were the students. So after a few years, I formalized that dynamic and just 
set it up as classes. So I grew out of that. And I started, let's see, I guess I was 24 when I first went to the Wild Food Weekend in West Virginia, which has been going on for maybe almost 50 years now. And this is a pretty big event. There's maybe 100 to 125 people that attend. And it was really fun. And when I went there, a lot of people encouraged me to start teaching about edible wild plants on a more formal basis. That was in 2000. And so I thought about it, and that's what I did after I came back. I started advertising classes in a more serious way. And that was the first time that I charged money for edible plant workshops or weekend classes would have been the following spring. I just pulled up, I did a quick search for the Wild Food Weekend, and here's a page from the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources listing you as one of the featured speakers at the Wild Foods Weekend. Yeah, I actually was their keynote speaker last fall. So that was what, about 10 or 12 years ago that you first went down there and were given the encouragement, and then from those first days of actually moving to being a professional teacher that now you're one of the keynote speakers in this field? Yeah, that was an interesting transformation. Yeah, I appeared there and I cooked something over the campfire the first weekend. And what I cooked over the campfire and brought up to the cooking contest that starts off the event, won the cooking contest, and no one there knew me or knew who I was. And that was the beginning of one of the funnest weekends of my life. And I met a bunch of wonderful people that I still know. Since then, they've had me come back as a keynote speaker on two occasions. And it wasn't like I was just starting off in wild foods at that time. My whole life was steeped in wild edibles, and I was learning all that I could. And I had arranged my life so that I was living in a little log cabin at the end of a dead-end dirt road next to the National Forest with very few bills to pay and a lot of time to spend out foraging and fishing and hunting. And I was collecting a lot of my own food and learning a ton. Ironically, it was teaching about edible wild plants that eventually was part of the process of me leaving that place. But I'm in a very good place now. Will you be at the Wild Food Weekend again this year? I am not going to be there this year. I travel there intermittently, but it's far. I was looking because from where I am here in Pennsylvania, it's about five hours because that's out in western West Virginia. Yeah, that is a bit of a wet. Yeah, and if anyone wants to go to a wild food event and meet some like-minded people and have fun and learn, it's a great event to go to. There's four similar events in the United States. There's this West Virginia Wild Food Weekend. There's one called the North Carolina Wild Food Weekend, which has also been going for about 40 years. And there's one in northwestern Minnesota called the Wild Food Summit, and there's one that's held in southwestern Wisconsin, the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival. And uh, my wife is actually one of the people involved in organizing that event. But as far as I know, those are the four events of that nature in the United States. And I'll certainly see what I can do about pulling links for all of those so that people can find those events if they're here in the U.S. and want to connect with that. You mentioned your wife is one of the organizers. Is she also a forager alongside you? She is. At the time that I met her, she was a berry picker, but her interest in wild foods didn't go very much beyond that, or maybe I should say her knowledge of wild foods. She was a, an avid berry picker, and that was one of the things that we first did together after we met. 
but she quickly realized, wow, there's a lot of cool stuff together, and she's really into it. And as a family, her and I and our two kids, we forage together a lot. It's a really great family activity. How old were your children when you first introduced them to foraging? Did you have them out there from day one? See, they don't know that foraging is a thing. It's just what we do. I dread the day, in a way, when they grow up and discover that other people don't eat this way, that it's not normal to eat nettles or lamb's quarters or that everybody doesn't eat dried service berries during the winter as a snack. But it's exciting to me to see that they think this is just normal and this is what people do. So I have no idea when is the first time that I forage with them, but I'm still astounded. My my son is two and a half and my daughter is it just turned four about a month ago. And I'm astounded at how many plants they know already. I can remember foraging for things when I was five and six years old. Now I guess I, I understand it better. I show them a particular berry in the yard. I mean, we have raspberries, blackberries in the yard. We have hazelnuts in the yard, wild strawberries in the yard. And I show them these things and they remember all of them. If they see them on a regular basis, they'll remember them and collect them on their own. So it doesn't seem quite as strange anymore remembering myself doing it before I could read. My children, my youngest, are both a year older than yours, almost exactly, in the same genders. And I think from a, coming from a permaculture perspective and being more of a cultivator, I think about all the lessons that I've had with my own children, with teaching them about the strawberries and the difference in colors when they're ripe, when they're not, and the blueberries. And my daughter, when I was first teaching her about the blueberries, and it's we only pick the purple ones, those are the ones that we want when they're ripe. They're real dark. And she goes down and she strips off all the berries that weren't ripe and said, Daddy, now they're all ready. And we sat down and ate. But those are, that's one of the places where I look as an educator as places to leverage is just to introduce people to these passions as soon as they have an interest in them and just to make it a regular part of their life. I hear people talking about children not wanting to eat their vegetables, but I tell you, if the children are involved in collecting those vegetables or fruits, they want to eat them. They seriously want to eat them. They will not let you forget to serve them. It's a totally different experience. My son and my daughter, when we collect a vegetable, they're all about it. My daughter says she doesn't like mushrooms, and she won't eat mushrooms that come, say, if we get a pizza or if we have spaghetti sauce that has mushrooms in it. But if we go collect a mushroom, she always says that she likes it and insists that we make it for her or include it in our food. And so it's like that experiential act of participating in harvesting the food, it mentally prepares them to appreciate the food. And it completely solves the, my kids don't like vegetables phenomenon. That participatory experience connects them with the food that they're eating? Yeah, definitely. You say that when you first met your wife that she was a berry picker, but you had been actively foraging for as you mentioned, mushrooms, all kinds of foods. Do you see the more work that you're doing? Are these different types of food collectors between the mushroom pickers, the berry pickers, and everyone else? Do you see a cross, a cross fertilization between those groups? They come together and share information, or are they in their own little collectives? I would say that most people who forage would consider themselves foragers in a general sense and are interested in all sorts of free wild food that they like. However, there is, in, in rural America, 
it's normal to pick berries. Everywhere you go, there is a small subset of wild berries that is considered normal to eat. You can pick them. Nobody thinks you're weird. In the eastern United States, that tends to be blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, wild strawberries, and elderberries. Not too much else. Any other berries, you're weird for picking. For example, we pick service berries, which are also called shadberries and Saskatoons. They go by a lot of names. There are a few species in Europe, but they're not prevalent in Europe. They're very prevalent in North America, and Native Americans consume them in huge quantities. And because the dominant culture here, based on this European culture, it is still passed down, that's not a normal food. So blueberries grow in Europe, and blackberries and raspberries that are identical grow in Europe, and elderberries. But the serviceberry, because it's not in Europe, is a weird food. And I'll go pick serviceberries, and they're in the same areas where blueberries are found. And people will make all kinds of strange comments to me about the strange food that I'm picking as if no rational person would eat that. And they never question why it is that they don't eat that. So there's a big subset of rural America that picks a small swath of wild food regularly. But people who would call themselves foragers, usually they're willing to look beyond that very small group of foods and generally are interested in all categories of it. Now, a lot of people that gather plants are not interested in hunting, but I would say most foragers that I know are at least interested in hunting and fishing if they don't do it, but the converse is not true. Most hunters and fishermen are not interested in foraging. In fact, I go so far as to say that they're less interested than the population as a whole. It's shocking. There are some hunters and fishermen, don't get me wrong, that are interested in mushrooms and wild berries and collecting greens, but it's a very small minority. So it's an interesting dynamic going on there. There's this somewhat cultural and it's somewhat macho, but I don't know anybody that picks, say, goes out and collects wild greens, but is not interested in berries or picks nuts, but is not interested in greens or berries. From collecting is in some people's eyes, is a kind of a topic all its own. But more so, I would say that there's a lot of people who pick mushrooms who are not interested in plants. Very few people that pick plants who are not interested in mushrooms. Mushroom collecting is, just, is a lot more popular than collecting greens or root vegetables or even berry picking. I wonder if that has to do with availability relative to what can be purchased. Yes, definitely. Until about 100 years ago, there were no cultivated mushrooms. And so all market mushrooms were collected. And another thing is provide a lot of protein. And in much of Europe, until recently, meat was expensive and people didn't eat a lot of meat. And so mushrooms were sort of a free seasonal nutritional supplement. And uh, hunting was and still is very popular in most of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe. I have a good friend from Russia, and he told me that People just sit around bars in Russia and talk about mushrooms the same way they talk about fishing in northern Wisconsin. And that it's not like you have to look for mushroom collectors, that you, would, you meet somebody in a rural area, you assume that they're a mushroom collector, is what he told me. So I think that's very much the case as to why mushroom collecting is so much more popular. And the other thing is collecting is about hunting. It's about searching. There's not a lot of prep after you collect the mushroom. 
some plants take a lot of prep work to turn them into an edible state or to make them into a useful food. And that includes our cultivated plants. If you had a wheat field near your house, it would be a lot of work to go out and turn any of that into bread. But mushrooms, it's pretty simple. You slice them up and you fry them in butter and everyone likes them. Not everyone, but anyone that likes mushrooms is going to like mushrooms prepared that way. I think about that. I processed spelt one year after growing it as a cover crop. I let it grow to seed and harvested it. And yeah, between picking the seed, breaking it apart, and then the winnowing and everything else, I just, I'd rather grow tomatoes or go pick violets or nasturtiums than processed grain. But thinking about that, could you give some examples of some high prep foods? In a general sense, the foods that take a lot of processing are starchy foods. And people often get discouraged with wild foods, starchy foods that take a lot of prep. But the same is true of virtually all of our cultivated starchy foods. But the classic example is acorns. Acorns are high in tannin. You have to shell them out, grind them up, either before or after you leach them, and then you have to leach the tannin out so that they're not bitter. There's a lot of work involved in doing that. And it's a lot easier to buy potatoes and bread and then forage for all your supplemental food. And that's probably why fewer people are interested in those starchy foods. But to me, that's one of the fascinating things about foraging is the idea that I could actually feed myself and feed my family if we needed to. And it's just fun to go out and do it. Another one is wild rice. We harvest wild rice, and it's a, a big part of our food economy in our house. We probably eat 60 to 80 pounds of dried wild rice a year in our house. And it's like dealing with any grain. You have to harvest it, dry it, and then we parch it, rub it to get rid of the hull, and then winnow off the chaff. And then you have the rice. And that's a, quite a bit of labor to get it to an, an edible state. Maple syrup is another fairly labor-intensive food, but people will do anything to get sugar. So that's a little bit more popular. And it's a lot of work to make maple syrup, but it's still less work than some of the other wild foods out there. I have a quick question for you, and then I want to turn back to something that you said. What percentage of your family's food would you say is coming from your foraging activities? It varies a lot from season to season and from year to year. We normally like to say it's about 40% of our diet, although we're in the middle of a house building project right now, and I know for the last couple of years it hasn't been that high. But we don't systematically separate it. We raise chickens, and we've got an orchard, and we've got a garden, and we buy food. And so we don't really keep track, but wild food is definitely something we eat every day. Breakfast this morning is wild rice that we harvested with maple syrup that we made, and pecans, which we purchased. So that was our breakfast. So, you know, we're incorporating wild foods into pretty much every meal that we eat at home every day. That percentage that you gave, does that include hunting and fishing? Yes, yep. As far as hunting, we harvest, we would like to harvest three to five deer a year, but it ends up being generally between one and four a year for our family. I think we would eat six or seven if we had that many. Then we also we hunt rabbits and squirrels and grouse, and we fish from time to time when we get the chance. It sounds like you have access to plenty of lands to forage on as well as game lands to hunt on. Yeah, we are blessed in that way. 
we have 60 acres and we uh, we live in a pretty remote area. I think our 36 square mile township has about I think there's 82 registered voters. So it's not a high population density. So there's lots and lots of land to wander and collect all sorts of stuff. However, I grew up in the city and for all but a year and a half of my childhood and there's certainly a lot of food to forage basically anywhere. Certain activities you can engage in anywhere, but there's always some free food to go out and collect. When you were growing up in the city, were you foraging for foods within the city limits or were you going out to parks in the suburbs and more rural areas? I was foraging almost exclusively within the city limits. I did, especially when I got older, I would ride my bike out of town. I lived for eight years in Madison, Wisconsin, and would ride my bike a few miles out of town, but forage a lot within the city limits. We lived near railroad tracks, and in those days, the railroad company mowed instead of sprayed to kill the vegetation along the track. And the area along the tracks that they had mowed was a foraging paradise. It was always young shoots and brush of berry plants. There was lots of stuff to collect there and small woodlots in town, but also the cracks in the sidewalk. We live near the Oscar Mayer factory, and there's a train station right next to there. And growing out of the gravel, I would dig up evening primrose. I also, when I was young, I didn't really differentiate foraging wild food from foraging for cultivated food. So if there was an apple tree or a crab apple tree that nobody used the fruit on, I would be there. A walnut tree in somebody's backyard, I would be happy to take those walnuts. So really in a in an urban landscape there's a lot of food available some urban landscapes are much better than some rural landscapes i foraged in chicago and in downtown washington dc and i foraged in minneapolis and seattle and what's interesting is that the size of a municipality does not have much effect on the type of wild vegetation that's there so a town of 2000 people is going to have the same stuff to forage for in town as New York City or Boston or Chicago. The only difference is maybe the social acceptability of doing that in different areas. And uh, in the bigger cities, you tend to get a greater variety of landscape plants that are put in that might have a forageable product. Like you don't see ginkgos in small towns, but big towns usually do have them. So oftentimes, as far as the street shade trees, there's better foraging opportunities in the bigger cities. Yeah, I think about having walked through some of the cities around here because of the approved tree list that are allowed to be planted and ginkgos are all in that and seeing what my friends have been able to harvest from those. Yeah, I'm actually personally not very fond of ginkgo nuts, but some people are really fond of them. And usually they plant male ginkgo trees, but every now and then there's a mistake and a female ginkgo tree gets put in that produces nuts. They're popular in Chinese cooking and among some foragers. Do you have much of a concern about pollution in the urban environment and foraging? My main concern as far as pollution goes is with the spraying of herbicides and pesticides. And that's true everywhere. And as far as the pollution, my attitude is that if you're living in the city, you're absorbing all that same pollution constantly as the plants are. I know that pollution is there and that's just part of life. That's a trade-off that we have chosen to live our modern lifestyle. We have chosen pollution and to live in it and to drink it and bathe in it and breathe it. I don't know why 
foraging shouldn't or wouldn't entail that also. I'm not saying I like it, but that's just the fact of life. So no, as far as the pollution that's just the inherent ambient pollution of an urban area, I don't worry about that foraging in urban areas. I do worry about the localized intense toxicity of spraying pesticides and herbicides, which is definitely something that people need to be aware of. So if you know that you're living near a place that's still in commercial operations that's spraying, then that's something to be concerned about. Or if you're going to go forage in your local park, but that they happen to be spraying herbicides and pesticides in that park, that's something to be aware of. Correct. I was walking by the post office the other day and I saw somebody beside a store near our post office spot spraying herbicide on weeds growing out of the, the crack along the building foundation. And I thought, ooh, I'm glad I'm watching that. I have collected weeds from there before. They have salsify growing there, which is one of my favorite wild vegetables. And I collected it in that area before. And usually the plants give some telltale signs that they've been sprayed. But the day that they're sprayed is the day that they're not going to show any signs. It'll take them a little while to show the evidence. And also near real busy highways, there's the fumes that collect on plants. That's not the issue that it used to be with leaded gasoline, but it's definitely still an issue, especially with older highways where the leaded, the lead has settled from the fumes over years past and is still in the soil along the roads. But as far as smaller streets and just the general urban landscape, I accept that risk when I forage in the city. And having worked on a lot of different farms in my life and living in a rural area, the amount of pollution there doesn't scare me nearly as much as what I see regularly being sprayed on crop fields. I really appreciate both your perspective on that and providing such a thorough answer about these different areas and the different things that we should be looking out for. I think about being in this position as an educator and a friend contacted me recently about wanting to deal with some, they refer to them, weeds in their yard as they're becoming a new homeowner, and part of the conversation was, yeah, I was just going to go out, get something, spray it, and take care of them. No! Let's discuss some things that you can do other than just spraying an herbicide all over everything. Yeah, the problem is that herbicide is so easy. It used to be that when you would rotate crops and you were switching from alfalfa to corn, you plow that alfalfa and you disc and you plow and you disc, and it's a tough, tenacious plant, and then you plant the corn. But now... You just spray the alfalfa once and it's all dead. And then you plow it once and disc it once and plant the corn. Or you do no-till and you just plant the corn. And it's easier. It's less work for the farmer. And so chemicals, in a lot of instances, are replacing labor because it's just so much easier. And I think that's really unfortunate. That's not a trade-off that I want to make. I'll pay for the extra labor both in labor when I do it myself and when I buy the food because I just don't want to see that. And that's a place where I look to local farmers markets and other places where you can connect with people and find out what their practices are and maybe even do a farm tour and be able to see those operations up close and know about what it is you're actually buying. Yeah, and that's a really great point because a lot of, a lot of people, things are dichotomized. It's either organic or not organic. But even within conventional farming, there's a great difference in management practices. Some farmers use chemicals every single place where they possibly could, and other farmers do it only when they feel it's really necessary for some pest in the, its reproduction cycle at a particular time. 
and there's there's farmers who don't use pesticide but do use fertilizer, which to me it's not as scary. It's a different I guess it's a totally different realm of a health concern and ecological concern. And that's where I just think that we all need to make the decisions that work for us and our families and the other people around us to make the best decision that we can within the place that we're at. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't belong to the food police that tells people what they should or shouldn't eat or what is or isn't moral to eat. I'm interested in what I want to eat, the food that feels physically good to me, that I enjoy, and that I enjoy harvesting, but also the food that I spiritually enjoy. I like the thought of what this food is, but I'm sure that somebody could pick apart my diet and find lots of things I eat that are uh, that somebody like me is probably not supposed to eat. And I really don't care when it, if we're going to get on a soapbox like that. Life is going to get way too complicated to solve any problems. We have so many things to worry about. Just do the best that we can. Meet other people where they're at and just work for a more positive experience. Yeah. When we were talking about high prep foods earlier, you mentioned about starchy foods and acorns in particular. One of the listener questions that I got was from Oscar Tree, and they said that I'd love to hear Sam's thoughts and ideas on acorn harvesting on a large scale, techniques for harvesting, drying, and processing at the commercial level. Is that something you could take a moment and speak to? Sure. This gets into something of my philosophy of wild food. We tend to think that we know everything worth knowing about food. In fact, agricultural science or crop science is very interesting in that it has declared the frontier of crops essentially closed. There is a openly spoken belief that we have discovered all the good crops. And not only that, there's an unspoken belief that we know the right way to relate to crops culturally, in terms of both agriculture and human culture. And I see there as being another possibility in terms of how people can relate to our food plants. And we have an example of that is commercially viable in the item of maple syrup. Maple syrup is grown basically with a natural ecosystem that's slightly modified and managed by humans. And I see that template as a way of managing a natural ecosystem as being applicable to a number of other native North American plants. And one of them is oaks. Several species of oaks, I think, are productive enough and have a large enough acorn that could be commercially harvested and processed in a way that's incredibly sustainable. The landscape itself would take very little management Obviously, you wouldn't have to till and replant. It would be basically thinning. The forest would be the primary management technique to get a nice density of trees that was productive. If our crops were red oak and white oak and tan oak in California and California black oak, that could be an incredibly sustainable enterprise, and I would personally feel really good about buying that food. I think there's an opportunity there, and I think it would represent just a totally different relationship to the landscape and to our food, and one that we really culturally have not explored. I'm not sure where the listener is located. To use acorns on a large scale, you really need to understand all the peculiarities of the particular oak that you're using. So, for example, I have a commercial oil press that I recently purchased because I'm going to start processing red oak, the northern red oak, which is 
the predominant oak in my area for cooking oil, and hopefully I can find an efficient way to process flour from it. And so I harvest the acorns. I guess I've developed a skill of I have a process by which I can identify where the acorns are good in terms of not particularly insect infested and ways of separating them out as I go. It's really too much to go into detail here. But first, you have to make sure you're getting good, relatively insect-free acorns, and then you have to have a way to dry them promptly so they don't spoil. And how you would do that depends on the type. White oak acorns dry with difficulty, bur oak with great difficulty, and red oak acorns fairly readily. And the California black oak acorn dries really nice without spoiling. So there's a lot of intricacies based upon which particular acorn that you're working with, a really greater detail than I could go into just offhand like this. But if this listener wants to email me with more particular questions, I would definitely share what I know. But I think it's a great idea. It would make me, I don't want to corner the market. It would make me happy to see other people engaging in it and we could learn from each other because there really isn't any such commercial industry in North America. However, there is a commercial acorn industry of the like in Korea. There are large-scale processing plants in Korea that have buying stations, and they buy from rural folks who can collect wild acorns, and then they're processed into flour, which is commercially available and regularly eaten throughout Korea. And you can purchase it imported from Korea in virtually any Asian food store in the United States. So there's a template there for how an industry like that can work. I would actually like to go to Korea and see how it actually functions kind of on the finer details. I think that's an example of a very sustainable industry that needs to develop. And I would love to see, by the time I'm a very old person, if I am lucky enough to live that long, a real legitimate acorn industry in this country. I think about the permaculture model and building edible food forests that you could, especially here in the East, about being able to use those oaks as your canopy tree, perhaps mixed with something like a shagbark hickory as the overstory, and to have that commercial production while still being productive underneath. I've called this idea ecoculture for a long time, cultivating an ecosystem. And I always use maple syrup as the familiar template that many people know how that works. I have a maple syrup orchard, if you call it that, or maple syrup sugar bush. We're a small commercial operation. We made 248 gallons of syrup this year, but we're legitimate maple syrup producers, and we do that on about 16 acres of maple woods. The beauty is if you figure out a way to utilize what nature already wants to produce, there's a whole bunch of advantages. The maples were already there. I didn't have to establish them. It's an inherently sustainable system. We're also managing our maple woods to produce wild leeks. It's also as an experimental station to figure out how wild leeks reproduce, how fast they reproduce, how, what are the best ways of propagating them and maintaining the population or increasing the population of the wild leeks. Because if you could grow the two crops together, maple syrup and wild leek, the beauty is by adding the wild leek to the sugar bush, you are having all this additional production with no additional cost, no additional land space. I say no additional cost. Obviously, there's a labor cost. But on the very same soil, the very same location, you can increase the edible production for humans. And you basically have an ecosystem that is 
so sustainable that you can go find it. You can go into the woods and find stands of sugar maple that cover 15 acres that have a nearly pure carpet of wild leeks underneath and see that, wow, we're just maintaining or imitating a pre-existing natural ecosystem that produces an enormous amount of food for people. Now, it's not as much food, of course, as a soybean field or a cornfield, but if a 20-acre stand of trees, if it can produce 85 pounds of sugar per acre and another 85 pounds of wild leeks per acre perpetually for thousands of years, that's a pretty good bargain, I think. And there's already all that food and energy embodied in those trees and all the other ecological services that they're serving by being there that aren't provided by other forms of agriculture. Exactly. The maple ecosystem is not only does it not mine the soil and not promote erosion and all the other means through which soil is destroyed, it's the maple forest that actually produced the agricultural soils in the northeastern United States. We can actually build soil. We can protect watersheds, build soil, have bird habitat. In my sugar bush, I have five species of resident salamander which that's not a lot for the northeastern United States, but that's pretty good for the upper Great Lakes. We have great variety of breeding birds. As far as wildlife, when the otters go from lake to lake through my sugar bush, they don't know that they're technically on a farm. The deer love to come in and browse the ash shoots when we cut our firewood and the stump sprouts spring up. So as far as ecologically, it's functioning just like the forest lands around it, and yet it's still producing food for people. You took the pre-existing model that was within nature and just encouraged the pieces of it that were beneficial to you and the ecosystem. Correct. And Native peoples have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. For example, in the Pacific Northwest, there was enormous areas of prairie-like ecosystem that were managed very carefully to produce camas, which was a staple starchy food in that part of the country. And when Europeans first came to the Seattle, Vancouver area in Washington and off the coast of British Columbia and parts of Oregon, they didn't know that they were seeing a carefully managed landscape. They thought they were seeing a wilderness. They didn't realize that this was akin to our maple sugar forest. Other parts of the eastern United States, there was nut orchards, spaced oaks and hickories and chestnuts and walnuts and butternuts in various stands where the native people thinned the trees around these and allowed these native trees to spread out these enormous crowns and produce enormous crops of nuts. There is just numerous examples of this. The problem, I shouldn't say the problem, but a fact about this type of management is that it doesn't genetically isolate the plants from their wild relatives. And so they do not go through the genetic process of domestication, of differentiating from the wild plant. So over a very long period of time, these management systems did not result in larger edible part or plants that needed people for reproduction. I believe that this is the reason that agriculture, agricultural plants or field crops surpassed that type of management system is simply because over a very long period of time, the crops that were managed under an ecoculture type system, they didn't improve and become more labor efficient. And the domesticated crops did. But I think that a lot of these native plants that are not domesticated have incredibly high inherent worth, and they tend to occupy different ecological niches. 
I shouldn't even say they tend to. They invariably occupy different ecological niches than those plants that were domesticated. And we're only looking at a small subset of useful food plants when we look at domesticated plants because the process of domestication was not an intentional process. It was an incidental process that depended on the management system that each particular plant was conducive to. Maybe that's a little too technical. That's how I view the interface between cultivated and wild plants and why I think there's so much potential for a more sustainable food culture if we look at the totality of food plants that nature has given us instead of just the very small subset of early successional plants that accidentally got domesticated thousands of years ago. And I forget what the number is, but it's like most of an American side is made up of seven or nine different things. Yeah, you can make a list of nine or 10 or 11 crops that are basically 70% of the world's calories. And you can expand that list to about 35 crops, and then you'll have 90-some percent of the world's calories. It's remarkable how much our diets focus on this really small subset of plants. And they're not chosen because they're culinarily better or anything like that. It's the simple economics. And those economics work because the crops have been domesticated for thousands of years and have these morphological features that make them efficient. People don't think very much about why wheat is such a dominant food. It's largely because for 6,000 years it's had no chaff. It's been free threshing. It has no glooms. Uh, the paleo and the lemma that used to attach to the grain and attach to most grains, like wild rice that I deal with, wheat lost those through a genetic aberration about 6,000 years ago, and that reduced the labor that it took to process wheat. And that's one of the major reasons that wheat has come to dominate the world food. Corn, same thing. The ancestor of corn went through a genetic aberration early on in its domestication that made it far more practical to use for food. The genetic ancestor of corn, teosinte, would be almost useless as a food crop today. It would be laughable if you showed someone this and said, this will become the most dominant food crop over an entire continent. People would have laughed at it 8,000 years ago. But because of just one or a few genetic changes that happened, essentially by accident, now this crop covers hundreds of millions of acres. We've covered about everything that I had listed here. I do have one more listener question, and I'd like to ask you for some recommended resources. From Andy Russell, he's very curious about autumn olives, such as their habitat, ID, and so on. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Autumn olive is a non-native shrub that was introduced widely in the 60s and 70s for erosion control, and now it's considered invasive in a lot of areas. It's common in places where the soil is really poor, eroded hillsides, abandoned pastures, roadsides, or places with real poor sandy soil, typically. And it's found basically in the eastern United States. It tapers out when you get to the very northern edge of the U.S. And then it doesn't do good on the real cold winters of the Great Plains. But you'll find it on roadsides and such. The berry is fairly distinct. It's elongated. It ripens to orange or red, and it has kind of silvery speckles all over the surface has one elongated seed inside. If you go online, it's a pretty easy plant to find photographs of. The berry is delicious. It tastes something between, I would say, like pomegranates, raspberries, and tomatoes, with tomato being definitely subservient to the other flavors. 
it makes a fantastic fruit leather. It makes a good jelly if you want to make jelly, but I, I don't make a lot of jelly out of fruit. Autumn olives, it's just delicious to eat out of hand. You want to get them when they're totally ripe because if they're underripe, they're very tart, very sour. But if they're fully ripe, they're excellent. They can vary from bush to bush, but there's definitely bushes that are just out of this world good. I think it's one of the best fruits in the world. So you said to go online to look up for more information on the autumn olive. Are there any online resources that you refer to regularly when you're out doing your foraging, if you have a question about something? When I try to identify plants, I do not generally do it online. Sometimes online, I will explore a little bit where I feel like a book I have may be inadequate, but I feel like a set of good identification guides for a person's region is much more reliable and easier to use than going online for plant ID. I think that's an instance where the internet so far has not served very well. And what are the good books for your region is going to depend on what your region is. And in some places, for instance, here for Wisconsin, we don't have a lot of good plant identification books for this state. But our neighboring state, Minnesota, has put out a book called Trees and Shrubs of Minnesota, which is the best tree and shrub book I've ever seen. It's just incredibly good. So you might have to explore a little bit to find out what resources to use for plant identification. For books specifically on edible wild plants, not to toot my horn too much, but a lot of people like my books, The Forager's Harvest and Nature's Garden. They don't cover all of the edible plants that you're going to encounter, but they cover a fairly good-sized subset of edible wild plants in a lot of detail. So for the plants they contain, they really are good identification resources and tell you how to use the plants and a lot more about them. There's also a book by an author, John Kalis. He's in Portland. It's Edible Wild Plants from Dirt to Plate, I think. Something like that. Anyways, if you look at the name Kalis, K-A-L-A-S, you'll find his book. Only deals with weeds, common agricultural weeds, yard weeds, garden weeds. So a small subset of edible plants, but it deals with them very thoroughly in a very good way. There are some books that kind of have a long list of edible plants, but not very much information about them. I think that users tend to get frustrated with those books. The Peterson Field Guide is one, Peterson Field Guide to Edible Wild Plants. It's definitely a good book to have in your collection, but I don't know if it's the first one I would get. But most people that forage actively have a small pile of books, seven, eight, ten books on plant identification and foraging, and that's what I would recommend for anyone getting into it. Go online, go on Amazon and check the reviews of the books and see what strikes your fancy. And if you find things that are specific to your, your region, particularly the identification guides, that's great. But I definitely, w- at this point, would choose books over any online resource. Do you find that books are just a little bit more accurate and concise? I find that the books are more accurate, but also that they are just more usable and user-friendly. You have to go through the trouble of putting the information together, whether it's on a website or in a book, and it is a ton of work. And Maybe when the internet's been around for 50 more years, people will have gone through the trouble of putting that together in an internet form. Someone's got to get paid for their work. And the internet hasn't figured out how to pay people for important information yet in a way that really puts that information out there. And so there just is not user-friendly plant identification websites to the extent that books work in that capacity. And yes, as far as misinformation, it is much more prevalent on the internet. I remember looking up a particular plant by scientific name a few years ago, 
and the first four websites I found had a photograph of the wrong plant. And this wasn't something that was going to be dangerous, but still, you don't want to have to deal with it. I wonder if this is the plant I'm looking at. And you'll see that in plant books occasionally, but it'll usually be a very closely related plant. But on the internet, I would say it's 50 times, maybe 100 times as prevalent. So for both reasons, convenience and accuracy, I would use a book. For someone who's interested in getting into foraging, would you recommend that they learn more about plant structure and things so that they can use the lingo to know whether or not something has compound leaves or a particular flower structure or something like that? Yeah, you're going to have to probably learn those things, but don't feel like you have to learn all of anything before you get into foraging. The way to approach it is by plant by plant. So you need to learn one plant well enough that you can identify it with absolute confidence, and then you can collect and use that one plant. And if you are going to remain interested in foraging, you will end up learning botanical terms, and they won't sound wacky or goofy to you or erudite anymore. They will just seem like words. So you should be open to that and willing to learn those words, but don't feel like you have to learn some certain long list of botanical terms before you get into foraging. All you need to do is know how to accurately identify one plant and then use that one. And then when you learn a second plant, you can use the second plant. It's much less daunting that way and much safer and much more reasonable. For you, how important are scientific names as opposed to common names? Scientific names are definitely important. Common names are thrown around and they're often used interchangeably. They're used sloppily. We've reached a point with many plants where the scientific names have changed so many times that there's a lot of confusion there too, but it'll be of a different kind of confusion. With trees, the common names are fairly standardized. If you say red oak, somebody else isn't going to say that some totally different tree is a northern red oak. A book isn't. But when you get to herbaceous plants, most of them don't even have a common name. A lot of people are surprised to hear this, but most herbaceous plants and most shrubs do not have a common name. And you might see a common name in a field guide, but that's not a real common name. It was just made up and put in the field guide so that people who don't like scientific names wouldn't throw the field guide away. So you could look up one plant, and it literally has seven different common names and seven different field guides. None of them are wrong, because since it doesn't have a common name, you can make up whatever you want. And that's just the reality. A lot of people are surprised to learn. Plants is a big frontier. There's not enough people interested for common names to even have developed for most of our herbaceous plants. That is rather surprising to hear. Yeah, and that includes a lot of really good edible plants. They just don't have a standardized common name. So an example, there's one called, it's Rudbeckia, a very abundant plant all over much, most of eastern North America. And I could look it up in one book, and it's called Wild Golden Glow. In another book, it's called Cutleaf Coneflower. In another book, it's called Green-Headed Coneflower. In another book, it's called Long-Headed Coneflower. I don't care. It's Rudbeckia. Each one of those common names is just made up so that people don't say, why don't they have a common name in this field guide? They're not real common names. And it's even worse with mushrooms. Each author has to make up a common name so that the field guide readers are satisfied. But if you really want to learn them, you should definitely learn them by the scientific names. Thank you, Sam, for everything that we've covered today. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation for the listeners? There's probably hundreds of things, but I guess the listeners are going to have to find them out on their own. It was great talking to you, and I guess I would just say uh, get out there and forage for fun, not because you feel like you're supposed to. Learn that one plant, go out, enjoy yourself out there, and just, as you say, have fun with it. Yeah. That's the big reason we forage is because it's fun. Thank you, Sam, for taking this time to sit down with me and talk about foraging and plants and mimicking natural systems. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you asking me, and it it was a great time. And that was Sam Thayer. There were a few points raised during this conversation that I'd like to revisit. The first is Sam's story and how he got to where he is by doing what he loves and with that gaining recognition as an expert. He found a passion and pursued it and did what he needed to learn more and continue to educate himself about wild foods and foraging. And there's a teacher of mine who's often asked, how did you learn this? Who taught you? To which that teacher responds, no one taught me this. I have one of the greatest superpowers around. I can read. So I got a library card and started researching and studying. And from there, that teacher sought out others, shared what he learned, asked questions, and exchanged ideas similar to Sam's experience. And then when people had questions and he was recognized as an expert, students came to him. Which also reminds me of that idea from Stephen Herod Buner and the citizen scientist, that we can learn and become experts in our own niches by taking our interests seriously. You've heard my story. I read and knew about permaculture for a long time before finally saying, hey, I want to do this. What are my options? And then I took the permaculture design course and it's all been downhill and rolling since then. But there are so many ways we can take action to work towards something that we care about and believe in. I hope that Sam's story, my own, and the others that you hear show the possibilities and provide you with some ideas of where you might be able to go beyond the place that you're at right now. The next piece is the communities and events that Sam found to be a part of and participate with, such as the Wild Food Weekend. We should all do the same. Whether you listen to the show because of your interest in permaculture, wild foods, sustainability, concerns about food security, or just happen to pick up this episode because it's about foraging, you should network with people near you interested in the same things. Start a permaculture or foraging club. Put up flyers. Find other people who are interested in these same ideas. Then get together with others so that you can share what you know, learn from the people you spend your time with, and refine your skills so that you continually get better and better at what you're doing. And if you're not in a place where you can find something like this, or you're not able to create your own, then find online message boards or other spaces to connect with people who are doing this. You'll learn a lot more by not being in a vacuum. And lastly of this is where Sam said that he's not the food police, that we have to make our own decisions, and that one is not better than the other. And I go back to that conversation with Ethan Hughes, and I know I'm going to revisit this one for a long time because of just the simple idea that Ethan shared about meeting someone where they're at. I don't want to judge someone for what they're not doing, but I'd rather revel with them in what they are. Each and every one of us can be doing better, can be doing more in the different areas of our lives. But I don't really focus on that because then it becomes that list of, oh, I didn't get this done, I didn't do that. Let's celebrate the positive. 
keep these conversations and all the others like them positive so we can build a better world together. And for me, after this conversation with Sam Thayer, that means I'm going to go out into my yard and find something wild and edible that I didn't know about before. I'm going to eat it and see what it's like. And when I know that I can collect that one safely, as much as I want, I'll choose another, and then another, and continue to take another step forward each day. Until the next time, take care of the earth, yourself, and each other.